Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Thursday, September 24th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well. They're staying safe and healthy and we can continue to confront the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I did earlier today with the head women's basketball coach at Tufts University, Coach Jill Pace. Tufts, for any listeners who don't know, and you will definitely learn during the interview, is one of the most prominent, uh, best Division Three women's basketball programs in the entire country. They are routinely competing for NESCAC titles, NCAA titles, uh, and there's a really, really strong, awesome program. And they happened for, for many, many years. So it was a really fun conversation. And I'm uh, happy everyone's going to get a chance to, to listen to it. But before we get to that conversation, obviously the the news from earlier this week about the Breonna Taylor decision came out. And it was extremely unfortunate, extremely upsetting that uh, no accountability or justice was had for the police officers who uh, killed Breonna Taylor really upsetting that even through everything that has been through the last three or four months that it feels like the answer is is still the same and that the same thing keeps on happening and happening uh but you know it as upsetting and disappointing as it is it it adds more fuel to to the fire and, and the fight for social justice and racial equality and uh we're going to keep fighting until and people are, are going to keep fighting and striving for change until until the change actually happens and uh, people are held accountable for police brutality. So um, really upsetting news, but uh, we got to keep hope and faith that better days are ahead. So uh, just going to say thoughts and prayers and to the Brown Taylor's family and everything that they've been going through because only they... Uh, only they really know what, what they're going through and the unimaginable pain that they must be feeling. So uh, that's all I got to say on that. Uh, and then I'm, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back, it's my interview, Coach Jill Pace. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at Tufts University, Jill Pace, a Maine native. She played her college ball at Bowdoin for Coach Adrian Scheibels, where she was the 2009 NESCAC Rookie of the Year, three-time All-NESCAC, a 1,000-point score, and 2009 NESCAC champion. After graduating from Bowdoin in 2012, she began her coaching career at Smith College as an assistant for Coach Lynn Hersey, and she helped lead Smith to their first NCAA tournament win in 2014. She then joined the staff at Tufts as an assistant, where in her two years with the Jumbos, she helped she helped the team reach two Final Fours, including an appearance in the 2016 National Championship game. In the summer of 2016, she was named the head coach at Pomona Pitzer, an elite liberal arts school outside of Los Angeles, where she took a one, where she took a one-win team in her first season to a 22 and six record in Skyac Conference Champions. Three years later, in the summer of 2019, she was named the head coach at Tufts, where in her first season at the helm, Coach Pace led the Tufts to a 26-0 start and a 28-1 final record and an appearance in the Sweet 16 before the NCAA tournament was canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. I'm absolutely thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? Everything's going well up here in Boston, David. Thanks so much for having me on your podcast. For sure, for sure. So kind of just getting right into it, Coach. 
you're up in Boston, you're up at Tufts. This fall semester is unlike one most people have ever gone through before at all these schools. Every school's being creative and having their own plans for this fall semester. What is the quick summary of what Tufts is doing uh, this fall to reopen campus? Yeah, great question. Um, so all students are welcome back on campus here at Tufts. We have, you know, a lot of um, safety measures put into place from um, isolation to quarantine uh, to testing. Uh, all students and staff and faculty um, twice a week on campus. So I think we're, you know, just really fortunate to have um, a great university who is taking really good care of our students and, you know, a great athletic department who um, cares a lot about our student athletes and are trying to, you know, find the best ways to, um, you know, keep going with athletics, even though things have changed, obviously, for the fall and who knows what the future holds. Uh, but a department that has been really creative and a university that's really supportive. And it's been really awesome to see on campus just all the students, um, you know, taking everything really seriously and mm -hmm. wearing masks and distancing and doing everything they're supposed to be doing, because at the end of the day, it's about the, the Tufts community and the surrounding communities of Medford and Somerville. And I think you know, I've been really um, impressed with the way the Tufts community has kind of rallied to these new things that, you know, no one really expected, but it is the world we're living in right now. And mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of going what's going on on campus right now for us. Now, athletically speaking, what is the women's basketball program's plans for the fall and just how are the players approaching it since, you know, it's not like they can play five-on-five pickup or do like all the things that they would do in, in a normal year right so as you know in the in d3 and the nuzcac um we're we have a lot of rules in the fall we don't get to see our players until october 15th uh the rest of division three women's basketball is october 1st this year uh so it's a little bit it's kind of similar to how it is in non-covid years where we would start november 1st and everybody else would start october 15th uh so everything in the in the offseason is, is optional for them our strength and conditioning coaches have done a phenomenal job of making the weight room a safe environment. And so our players have the option um, to go in there. Everything is in small groups with masks and following safety protocols, mm -hmm. but they have the option to go in there and, uh, you know, be shooting on their own within the, the parameters uh, of the rules and, and safety measures. Um, so that's what we're doing right now. We're, you know, we can meet with them socially distanced outside right now in, in small group situations. So we've been doing some individual meetings um, outside, which has been really nice. You oh, know, that's great. as many coaches have said, we've been on and, you know, we've been on Zoom and everything mm -hmm. all summer. So it's been really, really nice to, to see the team again and, you know, see them be get motivated and excited to be back and be in the gym and be able to work out more because for a lot of them this summer, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of access to gym space and right. there's a lot of working out outside. So, um, you know, they've been, they've been really motivated and it's been awesome to, to see them again this fall. Now I'm curious about how you approach this summer as, as a coach, because I, just from a player's perspective, you know, the season ends in the spring, there's checkpoints in the summer, there's checkpoints all getting ready for the NESCAC start date when I was at Wesleyan for November 1st, everything's kind of getting mm -hmm. ready for November 1st. And as a coach, you're you're used to, you know, you're a creature of habit. At this date, we go to this tournament. And this date is, you know, we host our camp. And this is what, what we do then. How did you approach the summer when, A, we just didn't really know when the start date would be. And also just without those checkpoints of the summer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the past six months has, 
you know, been all about adapting mm-hmm. to situations. And it's kind of interesting because it's something as a coach, I tell our players all the time in games and practice, you know, you need to adapt to, to situations that are happening in the game. And when you face adversity, you know, what are you doing? And so, you know, it's been kind of interesting to see that play out um, off the court, especially this summer. So, at the end of the season, we, we kind of did some things very similarly. We did some end-of-season meetings, and um, we had our captain's process, and we did that all virtually. Uh, so it was nice to have some kind of semblance of routine there at the end of the season. Uh, this summer, though, like you you touched on with recruiting, has definitely been challenging, but it's forced us to be creative and um, and how we're using Zoom and, and calling recruits and, you know, how we're vetting them with a lot of film and um, getting to know them. But, you know, we've just been adapting. I have an awesome assistant in Jamie Insel who, um, you know, has taken on a ton of recruiting this summer as well. So it's just been a lot of adapting, a lot of creativity and, um, you know, just just having to get to know prospective student-athletes without actually meeting many of them in person. Um, They can't come to campus because we have no guests, and, and, you know, there's a recruiting ban in the NESCAC right now um, for us. So, you know, just being creative and making sure that the the student-athletes we're bringing in are fitting the culture and fitting what we want as coaches in the the same way that, um, you know, we would do when we don't have COVID impacting everything. Yeah, so so let's go back to when there was no such thing as COVID nineteen and a much happier time. I mentioned at the top. I mentioned at the top. You grew up in Maine, but Maine's you know a big state. Where exactly did you grow up, and kind of just how did you first start playing and fall in love with basketball? Yeah, Maine. Maine's an awesome state. I love Maine. Um, much of my family is still in Maine. Um, I grew up in pretty southern Maine. I wouldn't say. To most Mainers, where I grew up in Bath is not technically Southern Maine, but for for everybody else, we're in pretty Southern Maine. So <laughs> I grew up in Bath, like it's forty five minutes north of Portland, um, okay. right off of Route One, just before Route One kind of starts to become a one lane road going up the the coast of Maine. Um, in a small shipbuilding town, our high school mascot was the Shipbuilders. Um, <laughs> don't quote me on this, but I think we're the only shipbuilders in the whole country for high school mascot. Okay. So um, that's pretty fun. But um, yeah, I just, you know, in terms of basketball, I uh, played my whole life. I played a lot of sports my whole life. I uh, played soccer, basketball, and softball all in high school. Um, and I dabbled in gymnastics growing up um, a little bit, which I loved. But I spent a lot of time um, at the local YMCA in my town. Um, I played with a lot of boys and a lot of kind of, they called it men's league, um, which was kind of a nighttime basketball league. Uh, so I was in high school. I, I played um, you know, at the local Y and, um, you know, it was what all my friends did. It was, uh, my family members all played sports. Um, so it was just something that kind of, um, you know, I grew up doing and, um, you know, obviously ended up, uh, following the coaching path, um, in large part due to, to my childhood for sure. So when you were in high school, you said you, you played multiple sports. Did, did you ever consider trying to play multiple sports in college or was it always, uh, basketball? Yeah, I I loved soccer. Um, I also loved softball, but I mostly played softball um, to kind of my dad's disappointment. He was a college baseball player. Uh, mm-hmm. I played it for, for fun and my friends. I wasn't, you know, all, a, all about softball, but I loved soccer. I was a goalie. Um, I considered it a little bit. Um, it's hard with the, the fall and winter crossover, um, mm-hmm. you know, with basketball, and I wanted to be the best basketball player I could possibly be, and I think – 
you know, especially being a goalie, it's kind of, you know, obviously you're getting in shape, but, um, it's a different kind of fitness level than, um, you know, being a field player in soccer and, you know, being a field player in soccer actually, I think translates pretty well to, to basketball in terms of the fitness level. And I, I had a couple of teammates at Bowdoin who played both soccer and basketball, um, and transitioned flawlessly. But I think for me, it would have been a little bit more challenging. Um, yeah, like I said, I loved it. We had a great soccer team in high school, but just ended up, um, you know, I love basketball. I was also, I think, the best at basketball. So I think those things kind of always go hand in hand. Things that you're good at end up being things that you want to pursue a little bit more. So what was the recruiting process like? And, and how did you end up choosing to stay in-state and and go to Bowdoin College? Yeah, my recruiting process was definitely interesting. So I grew up uh, 15 minutes. Bath is about 15 minutes from Bowdoin in mm-hmm. Brunswick. Um, so I grew up going to all the... Bowdoin women's basketball kids camps. Um, I think I went to, you know, every year of my childhood, except one year. I don't know why I missed it, but <laughs> I went when Stephanie Pemper was the coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to all those, those camps. I played pickup with the women's team. So those women's teams, you know, the alums who, I think it was that 2005, maybe Bowdoin team who played the national championship for the first time. Um, you know, those were my idols growing up, and, and those women were, were people that I really looked up to. So that that was kind of, you know, my introduction to Bowdoin. I don't think in, in the beginning of the recruiting process that I didn't necessarily want to stay in Maine. Um, I looked at some other NESCACs and some IVs a little bit, um, but it was just sort of weird. I, I ended up just saying, you know, I want to go to Bowdoin. I know it really well. I know mm-hmm. the coach really well. I know the team culture. It's, it's an amazing school. Um, so it, it, you know, not... Sorry, not very exciting recruiting yeah. process for the the podcast, but it's no, no, no. just kind of kind of just played out that way. Um, you know, just just growing up close to Bowdoin and um, you know really valuing what the institution offered and mm-hmm. also valuing what the women's basketball team kind of embodied and represented. Yeah. So you now correct me if I'm wrong, Coach, but were you recruited by Coach Pemper, and then when did you find out that she was going to leave Bowdoin and take the job at Navy and Coach Scheibels was going to take over and actually be your head coach in college? Yeah, you are right. So uh, Coach Bemper recruited me and Coach Scheibels' um, first year was my first year mm-hmm. um, at Bowdoin. And I found out, I think it was in the spring um, of my senior year, and you know, for me at the time, a high school senior who had known um, Steph coach Pemper for a long time I was you know honestly pretty devastated that she was leaving I was really excited for her to coach me and um she was a large part of why I chose Bowdoin um but you know a, a coach Scheibel's I couldn't have asked for a better coach so you know both of them are awesome and my experience with coach Scheibel's was you know I couldn't have picked a better coach to have so the um you know the situation was was pretty devastating at first but mm-hmm. ended up being one of the best things that that happened to me in terms of um you know who I got to be coached by and the experience I had at Bowdoin now I'm always curious about this coach you know I went to Wesleyan Bowdoin when Wesleyan are very very similar schools in a lot of respects in that Mm -hmm. high level of athletics but also really high academics and you were an all-conference player how did you balance like all your basketball stuff and your basketball goals while also making sure that you were on top of everything academically for Bowdoin, because for the listeners who may not know, it's, it's no joke when at Bowdoin, like (laughs) every class, like the easy intro classes are insanely hard. Yeah. And I definitely experienced that, um, in my first year at Bowdoin, it was, 
it was a challenging transition for me, um, academically for sure. In my first year, um, you know, I was, I remember taking a computer science and an econ class in the, the same semester, my first semester fall. And that did not go very well, but I learned <laughs> that I, I learned that I, I think a different way. And I ended up, um, majoring in sociology and gender and women's studies, um, as a double major. And so mm-hmm. I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think just I found my niche and I found what I really loved. Um, and that made me able to, I think, balance basketball and schoolwork a little bit easier because, you know, I was pursuing a degree um, that I really loved and um, loved learning about. And I also, you know, loved basketball. So it became, you know, it wasn't really work for me. It was like, right. you know, I'm going to work hard at basketball and, and play the game I love with my best friends. And also then I'm going to go learn. And I, you know, as a person, I just love learning generally. So um, to be able to learn about a, a couple subjects and majors that I really um, became passionate about um, was was pretty easy for me. But, right. you know, I think from the outside for people who, you know, don't understand that, that high academic nature, um, it seems kind of flawless because you watch these players, you know, play on the court and, and succeed. And you see that from the outside. But, you know, on the inside, you're right. It's... Um, you know, it, it, it can be challenging, especially um, in that first year for a lot of players to transition from high school. Yeah, I don't think I knew a single person at Wesleyan who successfully went through one semester of intro to, com- to computer science. It was like <laughs> yeah. it was like the hardest class ever. But so yeah, I, but like when, when you were at Bowdoin, too, not only are you doing really well personally, you're getting a great education, but the team is doing outstanding. And, you know, it's an incredible program. And in almost every game you guys play you guys were heavily favored in you know practically almost every single game you play conference non conference how did you keep the same focus or intensity level for each and every game knowing that uh you don't even maybe have to play that well and you still have a really chance to win just like were there any strategies to to fight complacency uh i think you know coach Stiebel's just did a really nice job of and that's definitely something i learned from her of of treating every game kind of as its own game, right? Mm-hmm. We're not looking forward. Um, we're not dwelling on the past, but we're trying to stay in the moment. Um, you know, one thing that pops into my head is we did a lot of visualization. Um, mm-hmm. for, uh, Coach Travels would lead us in visualization before games. And, um, you know, as a player, it took me a while to um, buy into that. And as a as a coach now, it's I meditate on a daily basis. I am a huge believer, but as a college athlete, I was like, what is this visualization? <laughs> like, wh- and, and everyone responds to it differently. Um, and, and I know it helped me as a player, but I think those couple things, just her philosophy and the way she communicated each game to us and the visualization. And, um, you know, also you talk about pressure and it's funny to think about, um, going from year to year, I think you feel so much less pressure as a first year because, uh-huh. You don't understand. And that was the year we won the NASCAC championship. And when we won, I remember winning the NASCAC championship as a first year. And I was like, oh, my God, we won. Like, <laughs> and then as you become a senior, you realize how challenging and hard and now coaching in the NASCAC, having coached in the NASCAC, how difficult it is yeah. to win the NASCAC championship. Um, and so that I just remember thinking back on my first year, just being like, oh, we won the championship. It's so awesome. But then, you know, by senior year, it's like, oh, shoot, we're in the quarterfinals This and feeling so much pressure than you did in your first year. So it, it definitely is kind of um, interesting how that kind of pressure develops over time, too. For sure. And there's also a different type of pressure at schools like Bowdoin where 
it's like a not not necessarily an academic pressure, but it's almost like a, a professional pressure where it's by sophomore junior year, kind of the the switch flips. And everyone starts talking about internships and starts thinking about what they're doing after college. And I know I went through this, and a lot of people I know at Wesley went through this, where it's like you kind of freak out, like you have a freak out moment, or like what am I doing? Did you ever have that that moment where you kind of freaked out about what you were doing or what you were planning to do after college, and 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 just did you ever consider a career besides coaching basketball? No, I didn't, and I never really had the freak out moment. Okay. Um, I think you know, I think a lot about my parents and just being grateful to them for supporting me in anything I wanted to do. You know, coaching is definitely not a conventional path for um, the kind of quote unquote typical um, NESCAC or Bowdoin students to go into, um, even though you know, the Bowdoin coaching tree is, is pretty wild yeah. um, for how many women go into coaching. But I think for kind of the general student body, not a ton of people go into coaching, but I, I just, you know, honestly, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wasn't ready to give out basketball. Um, and just like the, the way it made me feel the, the relationships I had, um, the way I think basketball and sports in general can impact people's lives. And, you know, I think that's in large part due to, to coach Scheibel's and, you know, she makes you want to feel like you want to give back to, to mm-hmm. what you've gotten as a, as a student athlete. And so, you know, back to your question, I, I didn't really have that. And I guess maybe I was just oblivious to it. Um, <laughs> That's always a good I'm, way to I'm be. A big, yeah, I'm a big, like, live in the moment type mm-hmm. of person. I don't think about the future a ton. Um, you know, in some capacity, you always have to. but And that probably rubbed off on on me in college and that's kind of, I was just in the moment doing my thing. And then all of a sudden I graduated, I was about to graduate and I, you know, ended up applying to Smith, but that's, that was kind of my thought process with um, the career choice. Yeah. I, I just know for me, it's no one really understands like the liberal arts and the, like the liberal arts degree. So all these people ask me like, what are you doing with like, with, with that degree? What, <laughs> like, what can you do with an econ history degree? I'm like, well, you could do a lot of stuff, but, uh, yeah. but so making that adjustment, you graduate, you go to Smith, you start coaching, what was that adjustment like at a super young age going from you're competing in the Sweet 16 and for the NESCAC championships to now you're a f- couple seats over on the bench and now all of a sudden you're the one supposed to be giving the guidance and you you can't go out and actually help uh, the team win anymore. You, you now have to use all your knowledge and guidance to help other people do the things that I'm sure it was killing you to to not be able to go out and do on the court. Yeah, I remember that first year and even those first couple of years at Smith just, you know, wanting to be back on the court. And I think that's that's totally natural, um, especially getting into coaching right after uh, you your college career. Uh, but the transition was smooth. Um, I just remember being really eager to learn. And um, I love the X's and O's piece. And, and Coach Hersey at Smith um, does a really phenomenal job of helping her assistants adjust um you know, the, the exercise and sports studies program. So every two years, there's a new cycle of assistant coaches. So I think in many ways, the Smith players and the, and Coach Hersey and the Smith coaching staff um, kind of understand that transition process. And, and it makes it a little bit easier. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think looking back after you mentioned that, I was really fortunate to have that because, um, you know, having a, a, a head coach and a mentor who is used to those transitions just – um, knows how to put you in situations to, to help you learn new things and to, right. and knows how to kind of communicate with you um, in a way that maybe if a coach wasn't used to that, it, it would be a little bit more challenging. Um, but that the transition was really smooth. Um, you know, I learned so much from Coach Hersey. She does 
uh, an amazing job just with X's and O's and, and game preparation and recruiting and everything. And so I think, you know, having that first taste of coaching with her right. um, was really beneficial for me because I think with coaching, like you can get into it and then hate it. Like mm-hmm. it's not a, it's not a, like I said earlier, it's not a conventional career. You're never, you're never off, right? It's not, yeah. you, you know, it's not a nine to five, like you're on all the time. And so I think for a lot of people that's, that's challenging, but you know, fortunately, Fortunately for me, I had a great kind of first couple years experience, which I think helped kind of propel me on that on that path. And you guys had an awesome year uh, in 2014. You win your first NCAA tournament game in Smith history. That summer, as you said, you graduate from the Smith program. A new set of assistants is coming into Smith. And you get a job at Tufts as an assistant coach for the women's program for Coach Carla Barubi, who's ex- who was an extraordinary coach. Tufts, awesome program. And also one of your main rivals during your time in college is they're also one of the premier NESCAC and national Division Three women's basketball programs. Was it awkward at all at times to now be working for your formal rivals and to be competing directly against your alma mater for NESCAC and national championships? Do you, do you mean was it awkward when I became an assistant or now currently? Uh, when you were an, an assistant. When I was an assistant, no, uh, Coach Ruby was, I I actually remember, um, it was a pretty informal interview process, but um, I met with Coach Ruby, uh, it was a really, I remember it, I don't know why, like it was yesterday, it was a really rainy day, came um, to Boston, I was still, must have still been in Amherst, so drove out to Boston to meet with Coach Ruby and um, Kate Barnowski, um, who was a player, uh, graduated in my class the same year, was an assistant with Coach Ruby, and I was in the middle of the interview, and Kate knocked on the door, I think unknowingly, or she needed to come grab something, and we looked at each other, and we're like, hey, you know, we had had competed against each other um, for so many years, and now we're, you know, I just remember that moment, and now we're really great friends, but Uh it wasn't awkward at all, I think, um, you know, Coach Ruby did an awesome job just, like, helping me um find my way and and you know use a, ask for a lot of um info from my experience and we used a lot of that you know from things we had done at smith and Bowden, and she did a, a really nice job of not making it awkward at all and so you played for coach shivels you're working for coach baruby they're both legends in the in the women's game and are both insanely successful and what it's proven in sports over and over again is there's a lot of different ways to win in basketball. For instance, like in division one, Syracuse plays nothing but two, three zone and Jim Beheim's won like 900 games. Duke and other teams never play zone and they also win a lot of games. <laughs> what was it like to get to learn from both of them? Cause they both have slightly different strategies, slightly different styles. And just what were like the similarities and differences between the two of them? Because they both win a lot, but they don't win the same way. Yeah, I think, you know, the crux of the crux of both the way they both coaches is absolutely really similar. Um, just in, in developing relationships with players and figuring out how to motivate players. Um, and so that way in their philosophy is really similar. Um, I definitely think if you, if you watch their games, both really defensive oriented teams, but I think, you know, Bowden, um, historically has just a really hot, had a really high powered offense. Um, Mm -hmm. And Tufts, when Coach Ruby was here, um, had a really high-powered defense. Um, so I think, you know, I was fortunate to, to learn both of those styles. And while they both value, you know, offense and defense, I think, you know, you can see in the way they, they coach and the way their teams play that they're a little different um, offensively and defensively. So, you know, from my perspective, from the X's and O's standpoint, standpoint I was pretty lucky to, um, you know, be able to, 
to play for a coach that, you know, her team's now put up like 90, sometimes 90 plus they're averaging at the beginning yeah. of the season and, and, and coaching with coach Ruby, who's, whose teams, you know, um, ab- we're averaging like giving up 43 points, but for the most of the, most of the season, somewhere in the thirties, probably in terms of, um, you know, points they're giving up per game. Um, so I think, you know, in those ways they're kind of different, but I, I think, you know, just as people and the philosophies they have in terms of their culture, uh, a lot of similarities between cultures um, and just how tight-knit and inclusive the teams are. Um, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, those things probably matter a little bit more than um, the X's and O's piece. Yeah, the, there were some insane box scores during yeah. your time at Tufts, right? I think you guys played Amherst. Like, I can't remember if it was like the NESCAC semifinals or if it was just a regular season where it was like two versus five in the country or something like that. And the final score was like 44, 41 or something like that. It was insane. Classic. And like, you're looking at like, this has to be a typo. Yeah. (laughs) But so. The first half. Yeah. It was was insane. But, you know, Tufts, you guys were awesome. And kind of the expectation is not just to do really well in the regular season, but also the expectation now for that program is to make it really far, especially under coach Barubi. As an assistant coach, when you guys are winning games and making the Final Four, is is there a part of the, okay, we are meeting expectation, or is it still just pure unbridled joy that you guys are going on such an insane, awesome run in the NCAA tournament? Yeah, I think, you know, you, you over time, it becomes an expectation, mm-hmm. right? Like, the expectation is um, to be playing in Final Fours and for national championships, and I think you know, that's completely valid. Um, the, the players earned that the right to, to have that as an expectation. But I do think um, Coach Ruby does, did an awesome job of um, making sure the team did find joy in, mm-hmm. in those wins, right? And, and you know, it's a, it's a process. It was always a process game by game. And, yeah, you celebrate those wins, but there's an there's a ultimate goal. And um, the whole team was on the same page of, of that goal to, you know, win a national championship and um, – yeah, so I think, you know, definitely finding joy, but also staying focused um, on the goal at hand that, that everyone wanted to achieve. For sure. So you guys make the national championship game. Unfortunately, you guys come up short, but that off season you get hired to be the new head women's basketball coach at Pomona out in California. What drew you to the job and just what was the adjustment like for you personally to just West Coast living and also just West Coast basketball? Yeah. Um, so the, what drew me to Pomona Pitzer, uh, was the opportunity. I think, um, I had talked to a lot, a lot of people in the Northeast might not know Pomona Pitzer, but you know, if you know the high academic institutions, you know, Pomona college and Pitzer college, um, you know, are right up there with the best of the best. And so I had a lot of, um, you know, mentors, uh, coach Ibles in particular, who was pretty familiar with Pomona college just from her days co- coaching at Swarthmore. I think mm-hmm. they played out there or something. So, she was the one who, um, you know, had mentioned it to me and, um, the adjustment to, to moving out there. Well, I'll go back. I, I also think, you know, I, Pomona Pitcher was just, uh, a sleeping giant really in my eyes. I yeah. think, you know, two high academic institutions that, um, can compete at a really high level who have, who, who have the ability to get players that want to excel in, in the classroom. And I think inherently that kind of translates to players who want to excel, um, on the basketball court. So I think, you know, that, that played into it as well. Uh, the transition was, was fun. Um, so my husband moved out with me. Um, he's also a Bowdoin grad 
Mm-hmm. Um, he played baseball at Bowdoin. So it was just me and him. Um, we had no family out there. Uh, so we moved out there together. He actually came out with me sight unseen. So he had never been out. And <laughs> we, had never seen the, we had never seen the place we were going to live in. I was on the phone with uh, kind of the housing person at Pomona. And we said, okay, the, the Victorian apartment sounds great. And we <laughs> packed up and moved out. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a really amazing experience for us to do that. Um, we're pretty adventurous people who like to try new things and, and new opportunities. And um, so it was just, that was kind of, the transition and, um, you know, ended up being a, a really cool, uh, three years. And so you go from losing the natural championship game at Tufts to a program, as you said, a sleeping giant, but they're sleeping because they've been struggling and they need that boost. And you in your first year, you, you win one game. I'm sure you lost more games in that one season in your first season <laughs> at promoted than you did maybe in your entire coaching career up to that point. Just how difficult was that season for you personally? And was there ever a moment where you're sitting on the couch or in the office after the game, and you're like, what did I sign up for? <laughs> it was challenging. It was, it was really challenging um, and hard, and it's hard to win one game. But I'll tell you what, that one game was pretty awesome mm-hmm. um, that we won. And our, uh, the head coach at Pomona Pitts are now Elena Wu. She was a senior um, my first year there and she scored her a thousand point that night too. And wow. it was like, it was like <laughs> we were celebrating a lot that, that night. But, um, I think, you know, it really, that year really made me grateful for the support system I have in my family. And, you know, the, the three coaching mentors, you know, that we've mentioned, um, on this call so far, it, it just made me really grateful. I, you know, I have, I have vivid memories of, you know, people texting me on that, um, the night of that first win, uh, coach Ruby and, um, a good friend of mine and her, Sonia Raman, who actually just mm-hmm. got hired by the Grizzlies. Great um, hire. So shout out to Sonia, but, um, texting me the night of that win, like with the double thumbs up. So uh-huh. I think, you know, you, you know, you learn to be grateful for the people you have around you. And that's something that I learned that year. Um, and then from a basketball perspective, um, just like really enjoying the process and finding wins in the little things um, right. for the team, but also never settling. I think that's something I learned that, you know, even though uh, we had a team that only won one game, I think all those players would tell you, I never allowed them to settle for, um, you know, losing or having a bad practice or not following team rules or being on time. And I think, you know, you have to set the foundation in year one, um, especially in a rebuild. And if you want that to translate into the future years. Right. And that kind of brings me to my next question of build of building that foundation and culture is this overused word, but I'm, I'm going to use it of building <laughs> like, like the culture at Pomona, because from the outside, like it's for someone who's sitting here where I am, or for one of your coaching mentors, who's not at practice every day, not in every meeting team activity, we can only tell if things are going in the right direction by if you're winning or you're losing because we're, because <laughs> we're not there every day as a coach. What are you? What are those little things that you're looking for? Of hey, even though we may not be winning games right now, we're building good days on top of good days, and we're building towards turning this this around. Mm-hmm. It's all about, I think, what you want to see and what your values are as a coach. So things that I value, um, a lot of communication. So are we communicating every day in practice? Are we communicating with the coaching staff? Are you communicating with each other? Like we can measure all of those things. Um, I think you can you can definitely look at statistics. Um, you know, are we meeting our game goals? Are we meeting our halftime goals? We I think that year is a year I started doing halftime goals, and it ended up being really valuable um, 
and, and continuing to do that moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, are we, are we, you know, are we on time? Like it, there were a lot of changes that I made that, um, you know, people were coming and going as they pleased. And, you know, that's not how I like to run my program. So mm-hmm. are we being on time? Are, you know, so whatever those values are, and those are a, a few for me or a couple for me, the communication and the being on time, um, and being great teammates that, those are definitely some of those are subjective, but I think all of those can, you know, essentially be measured um, as you uh, kind of go through that year one. And in 2018, 2019, you guys won 22 games and you won the Skyac Conference. You were an eight win team the year before that. And just, you know, we can be honest, coach. Did you think <laughs> that a 14 win jump was coming in year three and that you'd be conference champions two years after winning game one? Like, or was this all a part of the master plan? I mean, this was the master plan, David. <laughs> uh, that was like the plan. Um, no, no, and I don't think anyone anyone thought that. Um, but we brought in um, a really amazing um, first year class that year uh, with seven um, first year. There were seven first years on that team. A really amazing um, first year class that year um who really kind of bought in and then and we started to go along and I was like okay I think you know this team um can do something special uh you you could just watch them play and see it in their eyes and you know like we talked about earlier with that um you know buy-in you could kind of see all of that kind of playing out uh that year so no nobody nobody expected that but I think as time went on that year it was like okay we can you know keep this going and have a really um amazing season now, I'm always curious about this coach. I'm an East Coast kid. Every single person I know who took a visit to Southern California for college ended up choosing to go to college in Southern California. Was there any <laughs> kid who you got to come to campus for a recruiting trip, not from the not from the West Coast, who said no to the weather of Los Angeles and just the school of Pomona? <laughs> school to, to turn down I don't remember um exactly the numbers but it's 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 really beautiful and I don't know have you ever been out there to those campuses uh no but I have a couple of high school teammates who played at uh played at Claremont and uh okay. just th- that whole league yeah so it, it, it's really like you kind of mentioned it's it's hard not to fall in love with the the dynamic and the the five colleges and just the caliber is is amazing and the weather and and everything um so yeah it was um Recruiting is it is challenging in some ways, but the kind of colleges themselves and the weather makes it a little easier. For sure. And in the summer of 2019, Coach Barubi leaves Tufts. She gets the job at Princeton, and you get hired at Tufts, leaving the Pomona program that you're molding and shaping for this established giant that you already had a relationship with, but a, a giant. And you know, you mentioned earlier on this podcast that you were, as a player, devastated to see Coach Pemper leave at, at Bowdoin, and just you felt like you had a connection with her. Did you ever really hesitate at all about leaving Pomona, just given your own experience, having Coach Pemper leave when, when she recruited you, or or was it always just Tufts is a you know, quote-unquote blue blood program, it's a great school, like it's a once-in-a-lifetime type type job? Mm-hmm. No, it was it was it was very hard to leave. Um you know, I think when you're in the midst of uh, building something really special at a place like Pomona Pitzer um, and really loving the players you're coaching, um, it was, yeah, no doubt really hard to leave. So it it absolutely was a question. Um, I think, you know, 
the big picture piece, um, my family, we really missed our families, mm-hmm. um, Joe, my husband and I, and being able to be back closer to our families while also, you know, having the opportunity um, to not just be a part of a team that, you know, was a perennial powerhouse, but to really challenge myself too, as a coach, right. you know, I, I definitely had more time in me to, to build Pomona Pitzer and, and be with those players. But I also, you know, Tufts was a really good challenge for me as a person, um, both as a person and as a coach to see, you know, can I go in here and, um, you know, continue what coach Bruby has started just in terms of the caliber, um, you know, and push this, this program even further. So there were definitely a lot of things that, that went into it, but um, I'm really forever grateful to that experience at Pomona Pitzer and, and definitely miss those players. And it's really been fun kind of watching them develop as still a young team and watching um, Elena, who's, who was the interim and now the head coach really kind of um, build that team into her own too. And you mentioned coach Baruby had done such a great job of shaping that program. You come in, you were, did such a great job turning around and shaping your own program at Pomona. How did you go about balancing taking what was already established and already established to really be working and also taking and putting in all the little sprinkles and things that you wanted to change and shape to, to fit your image for the basketball program because you also were super successful at Pomona. Like, How did you balance not changing too much from what, Co- from what Coach Peruby was doing and don't fix something that's not broken and also – not and also having your own influence on the program as well yeah a lot of communication um a lot of communication with our really incredible senior class that graduated um this past year and and two uh amazing captains um in lily Perro and erica d candido um and those other two seniors sadie otley and kaylin harrington um just having people that you know to to coach ruby's credit and her recruiting and and player development were really open-minded and willing to have conversations and willing to sit on the couch um Mm -hmm. in the office and 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 answer truthfully right like um one of my big big things as a coach is you know i'm not i'm not in a power trip with my players like i want to be able to have open honest human conversations with them and so being able to sit on the couch and say hey if i do this if we do this as a staff what's going to happen with the team Mm -hmm. um and for them to to have the trust in me um to to answer um to answer truthfully and and i'm sure there were some things i can't pinpoint them right now where we had that conversation and they said "Eh, maybe that's not the the best idea but i think you did hit the nail on the head when you said um you know you do have to have a balance of uh what you change and what you don't change and i also think um not just with coming into a program that um you know, is a, is a national contender on a yearly basis like Tufts, but also going to a program like Pomona Pitzer that was a rebuild where Mm -hmm. it's the same exact situation. I think that gets lost um, in the conversation a little bit when I I talk to people about, um, you know, Tufts and Pomona Pitzer is while on paper, they look like completely different teams that I took over in reality. It's a very, very similar process Mm -hmm. um, just in terms of, um, what you're doing as a coach and how you approach these changes, because no matter if you're a, a, you know, undefeated team or you're winning one game at the end of the day for people and for especially um, 18 to 20 year old student athletes, change is hard. Like change is hard for everyone. Um, But especially when you're in college and there's a lot of change happening in general. um, So to have someone come in and and try to change everything, no matter the situation is going to be challenging. So, you know, back to your question about tops, I'm just um, 
you know, I was, I was lucky. Uh, I was lucky to have, um, those seniors and, and our captains that, you know, for some reason were, were open and willing to have those conversations because, you know, and a whole nother group of people and they might be closed off to those. So, um, you know, that's kind of that process with the change, the change. I am curious about this coach. Cause I've asked a couple coaches like this, this question of at high academic schools, how do you approach winter break? Because, okay, so you guys start, we start November 1st in the NESCAC. Mm-hmm. You guys are going full steam ahead. You're undefeated. You're on a great run. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's this mandated screeching stop to the season, this pause where all your players are focusing on final exams. And is that tough as a coach? Because you just want to keep the momentum going. You don't want to stop. And just how do you just approach that winter break period? Because it can be, depending on the year, two or three weeks off of no practice or, or games. Yeah, it is challenging. I think that our players don't know any different in the NASCAC. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's it's just something they know, right? Like, like when you come into the NASCAC, you, the start date is November 1st. And for some of our players, they don't even realize that the rest of the country is starting October 15th. So yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's when you know, when it's all you know, I think it makes it a little easier. But as coaches, um, it definitely is challenging to kind of figure out um, how you're going to approach practice when you get back. And this year, actually, we played Christopher Newport. Mm-hmm. Um, where were we? At the Stevens tournament. Um, the two days after, um, two days after we got back, and for for Jamie and I, uh, our staff trying to figure out what to do. It's like, well, I hope we can run up and down <laughs> the team that presses for 40 minutes. And how are we gonna, you know, um, get them ready for this in two days? So. Right. Well, I do think that piece is challenging. I also think the break is really necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, I try to be really conscious, and I, and maybe this is me kind of um, having played Division Three and in the NESCAC in particular, um, just being conscious of, you know, they have a lot on their plate, and for everybody a break um, is really nice. So I think being able to balance um, how hard you're going and your expectations of them on their own um, – on their time off um, versus giving them that well-earned time off Mm -hmm. um, is really important. So um, it is challenging, but also necessary. Um, I think, like I said, I just go back to it's what they know. So in many ways, maybe it's a little bit easier than it seems. And you've mentioned this a bunch of times so far on the podcast, Coach, and it's funny because my college coach, Coach Riley at Wesleyan, would always say, you know, we start November 1st, everyone else starts October 15th. Me, personally, as a player, I only know the player's experience, but talking to my friends and everything who played at schools that started October 15th, they're beating the crap out of each other doing <laughs> two days to try to separate themselves from everyone else, that by the time we get going on November 1st, they like are sick of playing each other already. Mm-hmm. From the coach's perspective, just how big of a deal is it to start on November 1st compared to October 15th? I think the challenging piece is the implementation of the things you want to do um, offensively and defensively. And I, I think the biggest disadvantage comes to the, the first years, the new player and the new players um, mm-hmm. on your team to, to have to learn a lot in a really short amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it may impact recruiting a little bit. I don't, you know, necessarily think it's at the front of my mind um, to be, recruiting players who I think can kind of adjust in that amount of time. Maybe it's subconscious. Um, but I think, you know, that's the biggest difference. I, I so at Pomona Pitzer and at Smith, we start October 15th. So I've mm-hmm. seen the, the other side of that as well, where it can be, 
so long. It, it, it's yeah. a really long time from October 15th to, I don't know, they just changed it. So November 8th maybe um, is the date for the first game, but it's a really long time. So, um, you know, it, it's challenging for that. And, and the November first piece is challenging for us just in terms of um, the teaching piece. Um, they, they do a good job of getting in shape on their own um, in the off season. I'm always really impressed uh, when they come in. So it's less that piece and more of kind of the learning piece. Interesting. Yeah. Just, you know, just from the player's perspective, it's always like you hear about it. You're like, well, you play, you, you love playing games and you know, it's going to be a really hard two weeks, but then you get to play a game. And I think it gives us an advantage because we're just a little, potentially a little fresher and mainly like you haven't been banging up on the person who you're guarding Mm -hmm. in practice for an extra (laughs) 25 practices or whatever it is. Like, I don't know. It was, it was always something interesting to hear. It's like every NESCAC coach, it's like, oh my God, we start November 1st. Yeah, and you see that uh, probably doesn't matter too much because you see so many NESCAC men's and women's teams in the national exactly the national tournament and and towards the end of the year. So it'd be interesting statistically to see kind of that impact with the NESCAC teams in the NCAA tournament. So you guys got over the hump. You, you dealt with the the November first start date. You went your first twenty six games, including an incredible win over Bowden early in season one versus two. You're on this incredible winning streak. Unfortunately, you lose to Bowdoin in the NESCAC championship game in an awesome weekend for just Tufts basketball as a whole because the men's team hosted the tournament. I mm-hmm. believe you guys were hosting. Yep. Tufts, Tufts won on an Eric Savage miracle yeah, 440 yeah. footer. Un- <laughs> unbelievable. When was the first time that you heard the word coronavirus? Because while you're going on all this, it's like the world sort of started to have other plans. I don't remember exactly. Um I remember the team really starting to talk about it pretty regularly on our trip out to uh, Western New England um, mm-hmm. for the first round. I think I had heard it here and there before then, but the team really uh, wouldn't stop talking about it um, <laughs> that weekend, um, rightfully so. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, it, it um, was is, is a big deal and was a big deal then, um, but that, that weekend for sure. But I remember the the week leading up um, to our Williams game was just, um, I'm sure you've heard it from other coaches, just, you know, Monday was, what, we're full go, we're having fans, we're yeah. doing all this, and then Thursday was, we're not having a game. So it was just, you know, like like it's been kind of over the past six months, changes um, so quickly and, um, you know, feeling for the team and, and our seniors. But um, that was kind of the progression of, of COVID for us. And and can you talk a little bit about that second week where you guys win those first two games, you're getting ready to host Williams starting Monday, it felt like a full go, and then by the end of the week, everything was shut down. Can can you kind of talk a little bit about the, the progression of that week and just when you found out uh, that the mm-hmm. season was, was canceled? Yeah, it was, it was a big bummer, too, because I thought we were playing, we were probably playing our best basketball of the season, I think, coming off the, the NASCAR championship loss, I think. We, we got our act together and we were playing mm. great basketball. Um, but yeah, that week, um, like I said, Monday was full go. And then um, I don't remember the exact timeline, but I think didn't the NBA, the NBA got canceled, I think, on Wednesday that Wednesday. Yeah. And then after that, um, we were like, okay, this is, <laughs> if we play, it's going to be a miracle. But um, all the teams were already here. Messiah was here. Mm-hmm. Um, Smith was Oh, no, the teams weren't here. Smith was practicing, and their practice got interrupted um, with the news. And then Williams was actually on their way 
to campus because they're relatively um, yeah. close by. So they came came a little bit later. So I I, I called um, Pat Manning, their coach, um, to let her know, and they they turned their bus around. So. And then I just, um, you know, I have these, I'll forever have these vivid memories of just being in the locker room after the game and a lot of tears, but a lot of, um, gratefulness. Uh, I, I love, love that team. Um, and you know, when you're in your first year somewhere, I think, um, there's always a special part of you that feels for that, that mm-hmm. team in your first year, no matter yeah. um, what happens. But for our team, you know, obviously a pretty magical um, year just in terms of winning games um, and a really, really special senior class. So we all were in the locker room and then we came out and, um, you know, I just I, I asked them, what, what do you guys want to do? And um, we just we have a our court. I don't know. Have you been you've been a tough. Yeah, yeah. Many times. Yeah. So the 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 court it has a huge jumbo in the middle and Mm. um we just all laid down in the middle of the court in a circle and there's a cool um photo of us one of our players took a selfie um on a really really sad day but also Mm. just um makes you really thankful for um the teammates you have and um you know the reflecting kind of on the season we had because you know while it was canceled and um you know we we could have made a run there for the the national championship. I also think it's important to kind of stop and and consider the season as a whole um, and just all that we accomplished. And as you said, outstanding senior class and included. You mentioned senior captain, but also national player of the year, mm-hmm. Erica DiCandido. What is that the dynamic like as a coach when you have a player who's the national player of the year on your team? You know, not only do you guys know that she's really, really good, but everyone else does too, right? And they're game plan to try to stop her. How much time do you spend trying to find creative ways to kind of anticipate what the other team is doing when they're in their pregame prep to try to slow her down and just dealing with all that comes with having the national player of the year on your team? Yeah, she, we, we run sets for, we ran sets for um, Erica. And I think, you know, the biggest thing, and one thing I learned as a coach um, this year, having a player of her caliber was to just listen to her, mm-hmm. um, to listen to what she was saying in games. And she was great about communicating, you know, this is what's happening out there. And, you know, we can't see everything as coaches, right. nor do I think I can see everything as a coach. So to have someone of her caliber, um, you know, talking to us through those situations um, was really cool. And, you know, an experience as a coach, you don't, you're, you're not going to get, um, a ton. Um, but just in terms of, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, um, about adapting and adjusting and, and that's something, um, we talked to Erica a lot about is, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have a target on your back and you got to figure out ways to, um, you know, to score and, and defend that, um, might take some adjustments in game. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that, that Erica was so good at, and, you know, someone of her caliber playing, already for three years um at Tufts with new coaches could have you know just said I know what I'm doing let me do my thing and um talk about just a person who is um just willing to learn um and willing to um take in information from new coaches and you know she grew a ton this year um just in in her ability just taking in um, things that she learned with, in particular, Jamie, who coaches our post players and, you know, was just willing to, to learn. And mm-hmm. I think you you saw that on the court that she really got better, not only over the course of her four years, but over the course of this year as well. Right. And yeah, she an incredible season, unfortunately cut short. But 
a typical season in some ways in that Bowdoin, Tufts, and Amherst were at the top of the NESCAC <laughs> and the top of the country. And, you know, we've mentioned this, how you not only compete for the NESCAC, but truly for national titles. Can you just describe what that atmosphere of this three-way rivalry is like and just what a matchup between you and either Bowdoin or you and Tufts is like in the arena for someone who just has never been able to go to one of those games? Yeah, it's... I would say it's just really fun. Mm. I, you know, I'm a big believer that the whole point, there's a lot of, of points of, of playing sports, but I think the whole point of, of playing is to compete and compete hard and, and, and compete against the best teams you can possibly compete against. So those, that's what those games are. They're the best teams in the country battling and figuring it out throughout the game and making big plays. Um, I think a lot of those, those, those games just come down to, you know, who's making the big play and the big moment. Um, and the, the team who can do that, you know, obviously it's a, it's a full game and you get to, to the end of the game, but the team who can make the big play and the big moment is the team that's going to win for the most part, if it's a close game, um, yeah. but they're different. I think, you know, us and Amherst and Bowden are, are very similar teams in, in our abilities, but also really different in our approach, yeah. um, you know, in terms of X's and O's and, and game strategy. So, I think from the, the coaching perspective, it's really fun to just figure things out from a team you think you know really well, but then you mm-hmm. watch and you're like, oh, maybe we should try um, this differently. And from a player's perspective, I just I just remember getting you know really jacked up for those games right. to um, just to play in them and to to be able to play in them and, and play against great teams because we're really lucky. And it's and you know I was out of the NASCAC for a bit. Um, I was at Pomona Pitzer and just coming back this year, I think the conference has grown a lot with, you know, it's not just us and, and, um, Amherst and, and Bowdoin, but really on any given night, any team can give any another team a run. I mean, Mm -hmm. you you probably saw the, our Hamilton, Hamilton game this year at Mm -hmm. Hamilton was, uh, it wasn't an overtime, but I think we were down. I I forget the exact score down to with under five seconds, maybe we ended up winning, but, you know, it's 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 really fun to be in a conference that on any given night anyone can beat each other. One hundred percent. And not only are you in a conference where anyone can beat anybody else, you're in a conference with former friends, teammates, and coaches. <laughs> so you mentioned Coach Shivels is still at Bowdoin, doing awesome. One of uh, her assistant coaches while you were there, Coach Montgomery, is now the coach at Bates. Coach Crasco at Middlebury and. Your former college teammate, Coach Binkhorse, is now at Wheaton, who's not in the NESCAC, but very close by in, in Massachusetts. You've matched up against those three teams, and you played Wheaton this past year. What is that game week like? Are there text messages? Are there <laughs> Facebook posts? Are there like just any communication at all? And then what is it like on the court and then afterwards when, when it's all said and done? Yeah, I don't there's many text messages unless it's logistical <laughs> like where should uh-huh. where should we eat where what should we do or something like that um, yeah it's really healthy competition i think it's you know i think your friendship it comes first i, I you know i know all of those um women that you mentioned so well and they're they're some of my very good friends um and so i think that always comes first and when you're on the court it's like any other game right. i i don't necessarily i never really consider the opposing coach so i think it's just you know you're in the game and you're playing against the team um it's always been that way for me right you're playing against the team you're not playing against the coach um and so i think when i'm in the game that's kind of my mindset and then after the game a lot of times it's just um you know hanging out and and chatting and you know maybe there's a little um 
it, whoever lost or won, there's a the little disappointment, of course. But uh-huh. um, I think it, with basketball season, it's always also, you know, challenging to be able to see your friends and, and to do things outside of being in season. So right. a lot of times for us, it's really nice to just be able to see each other um, in some capacity to kind of catch up and, and, and say hello. But I think, you know, there is that time frame from before the game to, to right after the game where you're in it and you're competitive and um you know, everyone wants to win the game. So that's kind of the goal. But at the end of the day, um, we are all still friends and I'm super fortunate to just, you know, that coaching tree is pretty amazing and a a testament to to Adrian, to coach Scheibels. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, it's just really fun. Coach, I really appreciate all the time. I have a couple more questions before we get to some fun ones at the end. Sure. Obviously talent is really important in basketball and you get talent through recruiting first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And that's either high school games, AU events. When you go to one of those, what are some of the things that you look for when you are evaluating players? Because obviously you're looking for really good players, but what are some of the other things that that you look for in players when you go recruiting? Yeah, I always, you know, I always look first and foremost for the caliber of person um, that's on the court. So how are you responding to your coach? Um, How are you responding to your teammates? How are you responding to any adversity you might face on the court? Um, You know, and I, and and we want people who respond to those things in positive ways and are able to to take constructive criticism. Um, You know, personally as a coach, I don't mind a little bit of, bit of a competitive edge. So, you know, if you're getting after it on the court and, and being tough and, um, I, I really like that. Um, I like players who do the little things, um, whether that be defensively or getting on the floor after loose balls or, um, you know, just, just getting O boards and, and the little things that aren't necess- taking charges that aren't necessarily on the stat sheet, a sheet. Um, mm-hmm. but I think as a coach, I just from a basketball standpoint, I tend to look a little bit more for offensive, um, players on offense who, who are talented offensively. I think, I really trust my ability to coach defense, and I think mm-hmm. it's a little bit easier to, to teach defense once you get to the um, college level. But, you know, I really believe that offensively, by the time you're a junior and senior in high school, you know, there's still learning that can be done. But whatever your shot is, that's pretty much your shot, right? We're yeah. not changing your shot at that point. So if you can be creative on offense and kind of have some ability that it's, it's a little bit harder to teach once you get to us, um, I tend to look for that a little bit. But I am – you know, I'm very much about um, good people who are good teammates and um, will take that um, maybe a person who's a little bit less talented, but um, brings intangibles that someone else doesn't have over someone that's maybe a little bit more talented. Interesting. Interesting. And also just, you've been at a lot of different places. You, we talked about the recruiting advantages that Pomona Pitzer has, just Los Angeles, the weather, yeah. Tufts. Now, I checked this earlier today. I don't know what it is now with midday Boston, Massachusetts traffic, but you're about a <laughs> 10 to 20 minute drive by car from the Tufts campus down to into Boston in about yeah. 40 minutes by the T, which for any listeners who don't know, that's just Boston's train service that they have. Yeah. What type of advantage is that to have Boston so close as, you know, there's obviously the professional opportunities with internships and, and all that stuff but also the fun social part of having a major city right in your backyard. Yeah, you can do it all. And Boston's a really fun um, city from a cultural standpoint and things that, that you're able to do. I think you you said it correctly, right? Like we have the tea right here and 
Um, we've got the red line and the green line are the two main um, trains here. And the green line is extending right to the Tufts campus. So mm-hmm. you can hop on the green line and get into the city. Um, I think the other advantages just come from being pretty centrally located um, compared to other places uh, in New England. And then also just having a major airport right by. Um, yeah. It takes like 15, 20 minutes to get to to Logan airport. So, um, that's an advantage for us, I think in recruiting as well. So we definitely, and and I think for a lot of people, Tufts is nice because it is, it's not in Boston. Yeah. It's it's close enough where you can access it like you alluded to, but it's also, um, far enough away where you don't necessarily feel like you're in the middle of, of sky skyscrapers in the downtown area. if, If that's not what you want. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, driving from Wesleyan to Logan one time for a flight. It took me three hours, but that, but uh, it's a lot easier calling from there. And, you know, just, just my last question now here, Coach, before we get to the yeah. fun ones is, you've been coaching for a long time now. How do you watch basketball? When, when you sit down on the couch and you turn on a game, whether it's a college game, a pro game, men's or women's, can you sit and watch it as a fan? Or is your coaching brain always on, like you're watching the Celtics and you have to write down what Brad Stevens just did out of bounds or that new <laughs> quick hitting play that Don Staley did at South Carolina? Like, like, how do you sit down and watch basketball now? It's funny that you mentioned that because um, I talk about this with Joe, my husband, all the time. Like, I can't just watch the game. It's, all, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually a little bit frustrating for me because sometimes I want to just watch the game without thinking about anything. But it's always, and it, it's... You know, I think as coaches, we've trained our brain to sort of watch for things in games, whether it's sets or, um, you know, just things that that teams are doing to what, you know, even watching like I watch the benches a lot to see how they're reacting to things. I watch other head coaches a lot um, on the court to see how they're reacting to things. So it becomes, I think, much more than just, um, you know, who's scoring and, and who's not scoring, which, you know, sometimes I wish I could get back to those days. But it's always I mean, it's nice to have. Um, some basketball and the the WNBA and the NBA back on on TV right now to be able 100%. to you know continue learning and just watch sports, which you know I think a lot of people are missing right now. Yeah, that's one hundred percent true. And the the NBA and the WNBA is just so different than everything else. Like you watch the bench during timeouts, half the guys or the girls aren't engaged because it's like they know they're not playing with four seconds left. It's it the the, yeah. the pro game is so different. It's it's it like a different, so different sport. Well, Coach, I really appreciate all the time so far. I have five rapid-fire questions to wrap up the podcast. All right, David, shoot. Do you have any pregame superstitions? No, none. And my team actually knows that, which is funny. I don't um, – yeah, I, I definitely do the same thing where, um, you know, come to the office and um, do a lot of end-of-game situations just on the board for myself just to make sure I'm, I'm prepared. But I'm really – I am not a superstitious person um, – whatsoever which some of our players are so it's I think sometimes hard for them to see that but no superstitions do you have a favorite drill as a coach um I tend to when I think about my favorite drill I always tend to base it off of team drills that the team loves um uh-huh. I think those end up being my favorite because just as a coach it's nice to to see players enjoying drills in practice because you know it's a long season um mm-hmm. so this year we did a drill called state shooting it was a drill we did um day before a game um every every practice before a game and shout out to to Pomona Pitzer um I got it from from their coaching staff which I think 
I'm rambling here now, but I think, you know, switching up um, drills you do in practice is really important and has proven to be really kind of successful for us in that our players love switching up the drills. Um, so this year it, it ended up being state shooting, which is just a really fun competitive shooting drill. Interesting. Do you have a most memorable game during your college playing career? Oh, it's got to be the NASCAR championship. My first year is, is, is the one that sticks out in my mind. Um, I just remember, I remember the score was 49 to 46. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in the game and the last shot came from the far corner from our bench and I was on the ball and it was a three point shot. And, um, I didn't foul the person, which was great because <laughs> as a first year player that could have easily happened. But, yep. um, I think what I remember most about that game is just seeing the joy, um, especially on our seniors faces, um, who, you know, we, we all, you know, you want to play for your seniors. So I think that's definitely why that game, um, sticks out in my mind. Do you have any coaching mentors or idols or just people where it's like, you know, that this coach or this team is playing that night and you got to get home and watch my people that you mentioned on this. Um, I, you know, watch Princeton um, and Smith and Bowden, even though, you know, Smith and Bowden are our competitors, those, um, you know, those three coaches are, are my mentors for sure. And, you know, a large reason why uh, I'm in this profession. So um, love watching um, those three teams. And with Synergy, you can watch every game in like 45 minutes. It's, it's oh, incredible. Oh yeah, yeah, just scroll, fast forward. And so last question is, if you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? Oh, uh, I do not like, and this doesn't really apply to us, but I hate video review. (laughs) (laughs) I am just, I mean, I understand there's objective things like shot clock violations and, you know, end of game stuff, but I can't stand watching when there's like a foul review and how much time it takes, particularly in the pros. Um, I just, I'm a believer that the officials are a part of the game Mm -hmm. uh, and that they their eye is subjective um and it's just part of it and so let's just play um so i yeah. it definitely doesn't apply to us but that's kind of um maybe not the popular opinion but that's no how it, I feel no about it. no that's def- that's definitely growing in popularity as for last yeah, night so? well last night was game four of heat celtics the last 18 seconds oh, apparently yeah, yeah, took yeah. 14 minutes of real time oh, yeah. to play 18 seconds of it's basketball wild. so uh, yeah, there's a lot of people <laughs> coming to be on your side <laughs> for that. Well, Coach, really, really appreciate all the time. As always, on the Double Double, we give the last word to uh, our guests. If you have anything you want to say or shout out to the great people of the Tufts community in Medford, Massachusetts. Um, no, I just want to um, say thanks to you, David. I This is this is pretty awesome, um, you giving a voice to um, – you know, D3 basketball coaches, um, and especially, um, women in coaching and, um, having us on and just hearing our perspective and, um, the research you do and, um, you know, the value you place on, um, athletics. So I really appreciate it. And it's really been fun chatting with you. I really appreciate that coach. Best of luck to the, to the jumbos, uh, this winter, but not against my Wesleyan Cardinals. (laughs) Sounds good. All right. (laughs) All right. Bye-bye. Thanks to Coach Pace for all the time. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. So before we end the podcast today, just a little wrap-up from the world of sports. Last night, obviously, the Lakers won. They beat the Nuggets by six. Uh, A really, really fun game. And 
you know, everyone, and I even made a couple of these, but everyone make, is making the, the 3-1 jokes that the Nuggets got them right where they want them, down 3-1 again. It does feel like we're going down the exact same path as they did in, in the other series where they hang around in all these games and it takes a lot from the other teams to win. And it's just like they're around in all, in all these games and in, in a couple of these games, they easily could have won and they could have been up 3-1 and LeBron would be down 3-1 again. And so it's, it's just really because I don't think this series is over. I, def, I, I, I do think we're going to see a game six. But it'll be interesting to see because in so many games, and we talk, I talked about this a little bit with, with Coach Pace, but it's like it's so many games when the teams are so evenly matched, it really just comes down to who's making shots in the last three or so minutes. Like It's so weird to think that it, it all comes down to who makes the big play, who makes the big shot uh, when when the big shot is needed. And last night it was, it was the Lakers, but for the whole playoffs, it's been Jamal Murray and, and the Denver Nuggets. So that'll be really fun to watch. The Miami Heat are up 3-1 on the Boston Celtics. And I think at, at the beginning I said Celtics in seven. And, uh, you know, that's the only way that I could be right. But the Miami Heat are stunning me every single game because you feel like, okay, eventually they're going to start regressing back to the mean and eventually you're going to start missing shots. And eventually they're going to be what they were all season, which was really good but not like a true championship-level team. And they're just continually proving me wrong, proving everyone wrong every single game. Jimmy Butler is proving me wrong at every moment during this whole season, restart, playoffs. Uh, he's playing awesome. And, you know, I was probably too harsh on him saying that I didn't really think he was a good teammate. But when a guy gets traded that 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 much, you know, it it seemed logical at the time. But he's found the perfect situation for him. He's found the perfect coach, the perfect organization, the perfect set of teammates. And it just, this is another example of how in professional sports, it's fit is everything. And you take a guy like a Tyler hero and how good he is for Miami. And everyone's saying, Oh, Tyler hero would be this on every other team. You know, we don't really know that. And I don't really know that. Like if, like if Tyler hero was on, let's say my New York Knicks, he would be good. He'd probably score a lot, but he would be an exciting young player. But would he be able to, would he be at this level where he's contributing to winning as much if he didn't have such a perfect organization around him who value player development, who value helping him get better at the things that he's already really good at and on top of everything else. And it just shows this, the Heat culture and the Miami Heat organization is just the top, top in in, in the NBA and the whole sports world taking this this collection of undervalued or uh, overlooked guys in a lot of ways and taking them to the precipice of the NBA Finals. So that game is tonight. I think the Celtics win this one. Uh, I think that they eventually they're going to figure out this 2-3 zone. Eventually they just have to figure it it out they're they're too good they have too many good players and i still think they have the best player in jason tatum but you know the best team is is winning the series so far so uh that's my thoughts on on the nba this week in the nfl we have a few very good games this week we have some matchups against some 2-0 teams at one o'clock rams at bills 
Uh, this was going to be a really fun game. The Bills are favored by, by two points. This is a chance for Josh Allen to really show what he's made of against a good Rams team with Aaron Donald, Sean McVay coaching. Golf versus Allen, two good young quarterbacks. And this is a, a game like if the Bills are going to win this division and, and take that next leap, this is a game there at home that they should win. Uh, so that's the game, 1 o'clock on Fox. That's a game that I would be tuning into this week. That's one of the first ones. Next game that I'm tuning into, uh, Pats against the Las Vegas Raiders. They went from Oakland to L.A. Now they're Vegas. This game is in New England. This is a chance for a bounce back for the Patriots. I know I've talked about the Patriots a lot. It seems like they're being previewed on, on every single podcast so far, but that's what happens when they're the most interesting team in the NFL with one of the most interesting quarterbacks situations that they have Cam Newton on a minimum deal, and he played really well. They were one yard away from beating Seattle last week, and I think Seattle's really good. The Raiders are 2-0. The Raiders are coming off a big win on Monday night against the New Orleans Saints. And this game's in Foxborough. Gruden versus Belichick. Uh, 1 o'clock CBS. The Pats are by 5.5. So that shows that Vegas thinks that the Patriots are really good and the Raiders at 2-0 may not be as good. So I think that's something to watch for just in terms of just like evaluating the teams and, and trying to figure out who's good and who's not good. That's where the betting lines can come uh, really in handy. It's Okay, here's what I think about something. Let's see what the odds makers say because they know so much more about it because they have to set that perfect line to try to get bets on both sides. And they know more than, than I do. And it's like, wow, they think the Patriots are really good. So this is a chance to really see like just how good are the Patriots and, and maybe just are the Raiders a little overhyped and a little overrated at 2-0 so far. So that's at 1 o'clock on CBS the other game is, you know, we could say 425 Cowboys-Seahawks. I think that's going to be a great game because uh, I'm just a huge fan of the Seahawks. Russell Wilson seems like he's in the true contention for MVP with Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson again this year. That game is going to be really, really good. It's in Seattle, Fox, 425. Seattle's here by five. So, again, this is a chance to see how good is Seattle how good is Dallas compared to what we all are thinking so far after watching those first two weeks? And then I, you know, Packers Saints is Breeze versus Rodgers, but Drew Brees has really struggled so far this year. He has not been the same guy that he has been for his entire career. And you can start to see on some throws, he's just not, he's just not the same. He's 39 years old. And it'll be really interesting to see what Sean Payton does creatively to try to help out his quarterback. Michael Thomas will still be injured. But again, Vegas thinks the Saints are good as they are favored by three points, and they don't think that the Packers are as good. The, the 2-0 Packers with Aaron Rodgers, and Rodgers is on this FU quest to prove everyone wrong that he's not done yet and that his team shouldn't have picked his heir apparent replacement and Jordan Love in the first round this past year, and he's just saying, screw it, FU guys. I'm still the man and we're I'm just I'm still awesome. So that's gonna be really fun to see what Rodgers does in prime time. 820. Now, the game of the week. This is the game where you put the kids to bed early, you lock in, no phone, no nothing. You make sure you had a good meal before it, even get some food for the game. This is like a prime time event. 
Monday night ESPN. This has to be the best Monday night football game in recent memory. Chiefs at the Ravens. 2-0 Chiefs versus the 2-0 Ravens. Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, the battle of the last two MVPs, the best two teams in the AFC. This is a game you clear the calendar and you lock in for this game because this game could is a preview of a potential AFC championship game. The two best quarterbacks probably in the entire AFC, and it's going to be incredible. Ravens are favored by three and a half. It's 8-15 on, on ESPN. I think the Chiefs win this game because I think Mahomes is better than Jackson because I think that no lead is ever safe around Patrick Mahomes as he's proven time and time and time and time again. But th- this game is just going to be incredible. It's going to be so much fun to watch. It's going to be really enjoyable. Clear the calendar. This is the one to lock in for. So uh, that's all I got. If, if you haven't, you know, voter registration deadlines are coming up. If you aren't registered or you want to double check that you are registered at your current address, request a mail-in ballot, find out your polling place, you can go to IWillVote.com. That is a great website, nonpartisan website that can just give you all the information you need. It takes two minutes to register if you're not registered. It takes two minutes to request a ballot if you want to mail in a ballot this year. It's it's everything you need to be ready for the election. So check yourself, check your own voter registration, send it to friends and family to make sure that they are registered and that they can get their ballots, that they can vote in this really, really important election. So uh, that'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care and make it a great day.